0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's alright. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host Slade Kemen, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event, enjoy. All
1: right, good evening everyone. Welcome to Club Book with Tia Williams. My name is Shannon Gibney and I am a locally based uh, writer, um, and professor, uh, activist, and community member. So happy to be here with you tonight. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Carver County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event. Tia Williams is a tour de force in the style industry. For more than two decades, she served as beauty editor for iconic magazines, including Elle, Glamour, and Essence. She also pioneered the beauty blog with her influential award-winning site, Shake Your, Be- shake your Beauty. See, I can't even, I want to say Shake your, your Booty, but no, it's Shake Your Beauty. Uh, Williams parlayed many of her firsthand experiences into The Accidental Diva, her debut novel, which, quote, accurately relates the joys and the pains of working in the beauty industry, end quote, in the words of Booklist. Her follow-up, The Perfect Fine, garnered Williams the African-American Literary Award for Best Fiction and is currently being adopted into a romantic comedy starring and produced by Gabrielle Union, which I think we're all going to be very interested to uh, tune into that. Williams' latest novel, Seven Days in June, became an instant New York Times bestseller and gained a still wider audience as the Reese Witherspoon book club pick for June 2021. Seven Days in June tracks the star-crossed love story of Eva and Shane, two gifted writers with an undeniable chemistry but complicated personal history. As New York Magazine notes, quote, Williams creates an entire world around the new Black literati. It's Black without apology, qualification, or race-related tragedy, end quote. Okay, so after a short talk by our esteemed guest and some initial questions from me we'll have time for audience Q&A. And you can simply drop your questions in the comments thread on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. So Tia, welcome and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I'm it's, it's such an honor to be here with you. Um, and everyone who's joining on the the and to the event. Um, so again, I'm Tia Williams. I, um, my most recent book is Seven Days in June and I'll just give you a quick sort of rundown um, of what it's about. So um, it follows two authors, um, two famous authors who seemingly randomly meet at a literary event in Brooklyn and sparks fly, Um, but what no one knows is that they actually know each other. And 15 years prior, when they were seniors in high school, they had one torrid week of romance that did not end well, and they hadn't spoken since then. But over the past 15 years, they've been communicating to each other through their books. Um, So there's flashbacks. Flashback elements. It takes place in present, I think 2019 or 2020. Um, and it flashes back to when they were in high school in 2004. Um, and I got the idea. I love writing love stories. It's what I've always done. And, you know, you sit down to, authors sit down to write something and it's almost like the genre picks them. You know, I could be writing about anything in a love story. A love story would come out of it. Um, but I was watching, Um, Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes Um, and I just I had this thought what if Romeo and Juliet didn't die like what if they experienced this like wild teenage love um, went a little crazy from it and then walked away and became functional (laughs) 30 something and ran into each other again as adults like what would happen and Every writing professor will say, Start a book with a question and then you answer it when you write it. And so that was the question that I started with. Um, and it was just really fun to create this, you know, try to craft an iconic love story um, where the characters are sort of larger than life and, and the stakes are high. And I grew up reading you know, in the 80s, like Judith Krantz and um, Jackie Collins and Harold Robbins, like these big Sidney Sheldon is more of like a thriller, the thriller type, but I loved big over the top um, sexy fiction. And it was all white people all the time. And so I would read these books and then recast them in my head as black people that I knew or like, you know, Uh, I read Wuthering Heights and decided that Heathcliff was Ralph Tresvant from New Edition. So I'm aging myself, but I'm also trying to explain the dearth of Black love in fiction back then. So um, I always felt like I wanted to grow up and write stories with us in them so that, you know, no one, no modern kid has to imagine a black version of a character that she is reading so yeah that's seven days in june this is the new paperback she's very pretty
1: oh so it's a beautiful love. cover too i mean i just looked at it and i was like oh my god exactly what you're talking about i was like black love in color yeah. like and it just is like so it just draws you in right away so um great work uh,
2: the team is so talented
1: I mean, that's clear. And the color yeah. the color scheme pops. I know you're a beauty person, so you're probably yeah. thinking about color. Um, so we have like a, a lot of uh, questions, as you know, already from the audience. And then I have my own questions. Um, yeah. Of course, um, uh, as I told you before, I love the book. Um, I just uh, was so taken Um, with these two characters who just kept on changing. Like, I felt like I would kind of get a read on one of them and then something would shift. And I'd be Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I I didn't realize that, um, you know, Eva had this whole uh, side of her her family based in um, Louisiana and, and, you know, Creole culture. But let me get to my first question, which is, you know, my questions are kind of like, many, many uh, dissertations. So you can kind of dig in where you, where you want, get in where you fit mm-hmm. in. So about seven days in June, is this a love story? Is this a yes. story? Okay, oh, sorry. Yeah. go ahead, no, yeah. no, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's good, that's good, okay. Uh, is this a story about black love and community and connection in a white dominant world? Is this a tale exploring mother daughter relationships? A meditation on and a letter to the Black literary community. How do you personally think about what kind of book this is? And you you talked about this in your introduction a little bit. Um, you know, how did you think about it while you were writing it? Did you think about it at all? You know, sort of like what these what these kinds of you know different parts of the book were sort of weaving together.
2: I always get asked the genre question, and it's so difficult because I'm classified as i'm classified as romance but because i i follow the rules of romance and they're very strict like you have to have a happy an hea a happily ever after if 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 there's a love story no matter how big and great it is but they don't end up together then it's not romance very strict rules um so that's where like my books sit but to me they're which I love, I, I love the romance industry, but I, in my brain when I'm writing it, I'm writing contemporary fiction. Um, because of all those layers, I'm obsessed with side stories. I'm obsessed with side characters. My feeling is that that a, a, a B character should come in as if they're, co- they're walking from their book that's about them. So no one knows they're a side character, you know? Everyone thinks they're the main character. So they need to be fully fleshed out and have a story and have a purpose. And, you know, I like for everyone to have origin stories and where do they come from and what are they wearing and um, what are they thinking, what do they want?
1: And- descriptions told me so much about these characters. You know, I'm a novelist myself and I do not, I mean, you know, like all the details about the the calfkins and like the different, yes. I, I mean, I was like, Shannon, you could learn a thing or two from this lady because the, this is very good characterization, you know, it, it tells Well, that's me-
2: my fashion magazine background because look, it's a new blush for spring. Every spring, there's a new pink blush, literally every spring. So what do you do? You have to write about this pink blush like it is the most transformative important universally gorgeous pink blush you've ever seen and you have to describe the hell out of it in very colorful language because all it is is a pink blush and so i would i would take i i took a lot that i learned growing up in the magazine industry describing clothes and and beauty and um i i put that in my characterizations and that's the first thing i do is decide what thank god for pinterest like decide exactly what they look like what their style is, what they do with their hair. I mean, black women, that so, tells you so much about who a person is. Um, so yeah, I love all those details. And I also love horror and I love mystery and I love, so having flashbacks and, and burying little Easter eggs throughout the book that, mer- you know, that link back to something in the flashback or links back to something in the present is just really fun for me.
1: Well, that is a great lead in to my next question, which, I mean, what really struck me about the book was the humor <laughs> in it and the the pop cultural references, you know, just like all throughout. I mean, it's such a funny and entertaining read. Um, and one example for folks, I just, you know, I don't want to assume that everybody's uh, read the book or read all the way through, but this is on page 283 um, when, uh uh, Eva is taking her daughter Audrey, um, she's dropping her off at uh, the airport uh, to go to her, her dad, Datafornia trip. Uh, that's what they call it, right? Yeah. Uh, and they had a, a, a fancy brunch planned with Shane, who didn't show. Um, and so Eva's trying to keep it together. She's so hurt. Uh, and her daughter is just um, very perceptive, of course, about her mother. And so she knows some of what's going on. Um, goodbye, my honey, she said letting go. Have the best time, OK, and be safe. I will. Don't worry, Audrey said with a smile. And mom? Yes? I know you made up the IKEA excuse for Shane. So she uh, you know, told her daughter at the brunch that, oh, Shane texted that you know he was at IKEA putting together some IKEA furniture and it was a disaster and he couldn't come. I know you're sad he didn't come, but give him a chance. He's a good person, I know he is, and I'm an incredible judge of character. You push stuff away that isn't safe and obvious, mom, but love isn't safe and obvious. Love is risky. Take the risk, woman. Flabbergasted, said Eva didn't even know which part of this speech to address. So instead, instead, she dissolved into nervous, breathy laughter. How on earth would you know that love's risky? Audrey rolled her eyes. Hello, I know lemonade by heart. <laughs> I I, mean, about that. I laughed out loud when I I mean there were just like so many moments where I'm like yeah and this is how you know this this tween would talk right and this is how like she would kind of you know weave in these little references to kind of um it's it's like this um uh not subtext but you know like a very particular language that she mm-hmm. and her mother speak together and um and again, it just, it's very entertaining to read, but then it also just does a lot for the characters too. It really makes them come to life. Um, and so, you know, I just want to say too, that, you know, writing humor is actually very hard. This is, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of people, go, oh, I'm writing, yeah, and it's, it's its not easy to do. And so how do you do it? Is it something that you have to intentionally think about or does, does your writing just kind of come out that way?
2: Well, um... I don't think about it. It's, I don't think that you can try to write funny. I think you write funny if you're, if you're a funny writer. Um, like, how do you create humor? Like, it's, it just either it's there or it's not. And the only reason my books are funny is because that's what comes out. That's what I've always done. Like, you know, we had to write about, we were doing like a, a horse, we were studying horses in fourth grade and we had to write a short story about a horse and like they gave us this um, drawing of a horse and we had to like color it in and like make it ours or whatever. And everyone's, you know, writing rip-offs, rip-offs of like the black stallion. I mean, this is the eighties, right? Or like, um, you know, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder in the Prairie, you know, riding a horse and I, wrote it from the perspective of a girl that was hiding a horse in the backyard of her suburban home. And she, every morning she brushed the horse's teeth with Colgate, which he loved, but that morning daughter of a dentist, but that morning she brushed his teeth with crest, which he hated. So he was so upset about his breath, not smelling the way it usually does. that it bucked and like kicked me off and I went flying and the teacher was like, what are you like? What? What is this? Like, this was not, like, I I feel like life is so absurd that it's hard for me to tell a straight story in real life. And it's hard for me to write a straight face story in fiction because the world we live in is totally ridiculous. So I like to bring out those elements, even in a sex scene, even in really dark, you know, touching on dark, topics which 7 days in june does there's always something funny
1: i think and something ridiculous yeah i mean yeah. i love that what you just said about like you know i mean life is just funny it's just it's just and and i think because of a lot of the absurdity um and that that definitely uh comes through um Okay, I'm gonna ask one more uh, uh, question for myself, and then we're gonna to go to some um, from the audience. I mean, there there are some really like you know uh, steamy sex scenes in this in this book, um, and um, that also shows this like intense connection between the protagonists that they can't deny either. Um, what, I mean, how do you write a, a, a believable and non-cheesy sex scene? How do, you, how do you go about doing that? Well,
2: so I think that the sex scene is, isn't separate than any of the other scenes. Like, it's not like you write the book and you go back and write the sex scene separately. To me, they, they can't be... Pointless unless it's erotica. You know, those scenes aren't point I pointless was not the word I wanted to use. They can't, they shouldn't really be standalones. They should help push the narrative forward. They should do something to move the plot forward, just like any other scene or any other chapter. And so I like for them, for you to find out things about characters and sex scenes or, you know, something is revealed or something is a surprise or, you know, there's elements of of what's happening in their story that are woven into the sex scene. So it just doesn't feel, um, you know, embarrassing. (laughs) Which some of them feel embarrassing, Um, especially if there's a huge total shift, like you're reading something and it's like, you know, straightforward and direct and then you get to the sex scene and they're talking about like love buttons and throbbing whatever's and you're like, girl. Um, so yeah, like that's what I do. I, I like for the, for it to, to really flow, like n- no spoilers, but like in the first sex scene in seven, my poor 13 year old daughter, she's cringing in her room right now. Um, but in the first sex scene in seven days in June, It was very specific to these two characters and where they were at the time. You have Shane who is in recovery for two years and hasn't done it in two years because he's really been focusing on sobriety. You have Eva who hasn't done it in longer than that just because she's a single mom working her ass off and just hasn't had time. So they're both just kind of like, he's like, okay, this will be over in two seconds. And she's like, oh no, it's gonna hurt. And you know, it's real or what, who they, these people are at that time. So it doesn't just feel like it was dropped in from soft core universe.
1: Yeah. I mean, I felt like, you know, when we meet them, there's like this charge right away. Right. And, and it's definitely, um, you know, I mean, an emotional connection, a psychological, Mm -hmm. there's definitely a sexual aspect to it. And then it's like, you know, as they're going through that day together I, you know mm-hmm. just waiting like okay something's gonna happen but the way that it happened not to give spoilers was very unexpected and kind of just cracked me up and I felt like um in some ways um uh New York City was also uh it was also sort of like a, a love letter to New York City in, mm-hmm. the, in, these, in these very particular ways that uh were very poignant as well so um yeah, just uh, kudos to you. Very, very well done. Thank you. So we have a question from the audience. Um, What drove you to make the leap from fashion magazines and blogs to the novel medium?
2: So I've always done both. Um, So I always knew I had these two obsessions growing up, reading and writing fiction and fashion magazines. And I, I was never conflicted. I always knew exactly what I was gonna do. After college, I'm moving to New York, I'm writing for fashion magazines and I'm gonna become a novelist. And so I moved here the summer of 97 after I graduated from University of Virginia with my little checklist of everything that I was gonna do. Um, and I started working as a beauty assistant at L. and I was so ready to write my book. And then I sat down to write my novel, and I was like, I don't have anything to write about, because I haven't really done anything, so I was like, let me give myself a couple of years in New York to, like, you know, get the vibe of life, and, like, get some experience, you know, I'm 21 years old, so by the time I was working at Glamour, like, three years later, I was like, oh, life has happened, so I'm in the middle of Devil Wears Prada land at Condé Nast, like, really cutthroat, Um, tough, uh, pre-Me Too, uh, pre-economic crash, pre-9-11, like money's flying around, like these huge budgets, these editors that are larger than life. You know, I had an editor throw a bagel at me once. Um, And by then I had also, I dated a couple of charismatic assholes and um, I was like, huh, I have material now. And so I my job, I put my stuff in storage, I'm like 24 at this point. I moved to Seville, Spain to go on sabbatical for six months and teach English. And while I was there, I started writing my what would be my first novel, The Accidental, the Accidental Diva. And I wrote it about this relationship that I had that was nuts, but I in order to make me feel better, I almost use it as therapy. I turned it around and made him fabulous and had, gave him a happy ending. And it, it made me feel good. And when I came back to New York um, in January of 2002, um, I got an agent and I sold it. And that was my first novel. And so I've been like dual pathing since I was 24 doing both. Yeah.
1: And how has that, I mean, been for you? I mean, um, I know, uh, you know, writing novels can be uh, pretty all-consuming sometimes. Mm-hmm. you have to kind of like block out uh, certain time periods where, you, you know, you can get like a first draft done and then it's like, mm-hmm. or how do, you, how do you do it?
2: It's horrible. Like there's no, there's no two ways about it. Like there's no, it is so hard. Anyone with a full-time job, who write, you know, also, you can't even say writes on the side because it's, it's been, you're consumed by it. You know, it's not a side hustle. It's actually the hustle and the nine to five is so that I have a steady, you know, paycheck. Um, because as we know, writers, we don't get into it for the money. But um, yeah, it's hard. The most important thing is having discipline because if you don't, have that you can't do it and it, it just is that simple because there's always something more fun to do than to write always organizing your closet watching Real Housewives eating like anything is better than writing writing is lonely it's isolating you're all alone it's you and a laptop and you don't know if you're killing it Or bombing. You just have no way of knowing. Um, and it's hard. So you have to think of like the, the, the most rigid micromanaging boss you've ever had. And you have to be that for yourself. Um, and for me, that's the only way I've been able to do it. Like, no, you can't go to brunch with your friends. Okay. You can go on that girl's trip to, to Tulum, but you have to write till four every day, and then you can go hang out. Like, and my friends will say like, yeah, Tia brings her laptop on trips. My family, you know, yeah, it's Thanksgiving, everyone's in the kitchen. I'm somewhere writing. So you have to sacrifice in order to do it. But if it's that important, I always think of people who take fitness really seriously. And like they get up at four in the morning to run. My husband gets up at the crack of dawn and runs and I, I can't fathom it, but it's that important to him. So that's what he has to do. It's the same thing for you know juggling writing.
1: Thank you, thank you. Um, I have another question from our esteemed audience. Um, this person writes, I can't claim to have much in common with these wonderful characters, but I do suffer from debilitating cluster headaches. It was nice to see this kind of affliction reflected in a romance, I, I like that too, where folks are usually either hale and healthy or suffering from something truly fatal a la the fault in our stars. Right. Was, yeah. Was this aspect of your protagonist story something you have personal experience with? If not, what did you research or who did you talk to to get it so right?
2: Um. So Eva and I have a few things in common. Eva is the main character. Um, when I was writing this, I was a single mother of a tween, and I had been, her dad and I got divorced
1: when she was a baby. Hi, cutie! Do <laughs> hey, you wanna say hi? This is Marwen, my, my, my daughter. She's seven. She yes. You. Yes. How yes. You guys look alike. <laughs> this is, yes, that mini me. Uh, so, yeah, Maui likes to say hello sometimes. This is my friend Tia. We're talking oh. about her book. I have a daughter too, but she's 13 now. My son is 12, so he's more in line with Okay. Got it. Take care of the dog. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, Um, What was I saying? Oh, I'm so sorry. The cluster headaches. Oh,
2: Um, yes. Okay, so the things that I have in common with Eva. Single mother, writer, living in Park Slope, Brooklyn, Creole mother, and debilitating migraines since I was nine. So when I was writing about Eva and her pain, that was me. Um, and, uh, it's taken me a long time to write about chronic pain because it's not really fun. And I never really realized I, I could never figure out how to get that into the severity of it, into a book, like it ruins relationships. any kind of chronic pain, you know, it messes with your work life, your private life, your friendships, you know, your mothering everything. And I wanted to figure out how, to, how to represent that. Without it being sick fit sick thick, which which I also love, like Fault the Fault in Our Stars. Um, but I didn't want the her diagnosis to be her entire personality because it isn't it isn't mine.
1: I did think it was so well done. Like I I felt like reading it um it was this thing that moved through her but it wasn't necessarily her um mm-hmm. and really kind of it just wasn't something that i was expecting from this particular book which mm-hmm. um which i appreciated, um particularly um in terms of like you know how do people manage pain in their daily lives like how does this and and particularly because she's a black woman too and we don't have a lot of um forums (laughs) to talk about that you know where the, the myth of the superwoman is still very much with us right so there's this person i mean i think it just contributed to this um this reading of eva it's this person who has this you know veneer of like togetherness mm-hmm. you know but mm-hmm. the, underneath there's like all this other stuff that's yeah. going on you know and um so yeah I, I just um I just thought that was really interesting and really like an interesting facet that I wasn't expecting I am appreciate it oh, thank
2: you yeah
1: yeah yeah oh, I yeah.
2: just like touched on it in the first draft and my editor was like no you have to really go into it and it's so painful and you know triggering oh god do I really have to describe what it feels like and what the days are really like and the shots and the pills and everything and um she was like yes you do (laughs) so yeah um I have a really great editor
1: yeah it's amazing like when you have a great editor what can happen um, yeah with your with your uh, manuscript um next question um let's see here My book club had a discussion guide that included this deceptively simple prompt. Let's talk about Eva and Audrey's mother-daughter relationship. We had a lot to say, all bringing different personal experiences to that question. What would you have your readers take away from their story within the story? Is it based at all on your own mothering journey? And you've talked like a little bit uh, about your daughter, uh, Uh in but but yeah, I mean, especially when we have kind of like the mirroring of Lisette, and Eva, and mm-hmm. then Eva and Audrey, um, which it, it just that whole. I mean, even Shane are so different, but in terms of their upbringing and how they were, I mean, they were both basically like abandoned, you know. Yeah, and, you know, that's really right. intensely. So, um, so, so yeah. So her. that's yeah. You know, it's always me and my entourage. When we do something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for understanding that um so yeah so I mean um yeah I just just talk a little bit about uh that the mother-daughter kind of themes in the book if you would
2: yeah so it definitely reflected my daughter like I have a very precocious kid and it was just me and her I mean her her dad and I in the book Eva's ex-husband has Audrey Summers um but my daughter's father, my ex-husband, lives ten minutes away. Um, and when I was writing the book, he was actually within walking distance. And Lena went back and forth, so we, you know, shared custody. It's all, it's all good. Um, but you know, when she was when she was in with me and, in my home, it was just me and us. Me and us. It was just the two of us for nine years till I met my now husband. While I was writing Seven Days in June. Um, and that sort of estrogen bubble of, I don't know what it's like with single moms of sons, but with a single mom and a daughter, it can be pretty symbiotic. Um, you know, uh, it's like this bubble of private rituals and, a language that the only the two of you speak and this understanding and the kid is always going to be precocious because she's hanging around with a bunch of 40 year old ladies. (laughs) Um, So what does hopeless mean? Define that. Like, why do you feel hopeless? Like listening to my conversations with my friends in the kitchen. Um, And she is, one of those people that's always the most insightful in the room and sometimes knows more than grownups do about human behavior. And that's where I got Audrey from. And I'm also obsessed with mothers and daughters. I grew up at the oldest of three daughters. My mom has two sisters. We I have a million female first cousins, not a lot of boys in my family at all. And so just the relationship between daughters has always been really interesting to me. And I wanted to show how you can take, you know, a dysfunctional, toxic childhood and reverse it for the next generation and break those childhood traumas. Um, but also what it does to you as a mother, and Eva lied a lot. You know, she, she doesn't tell her daughter the truth about who her own mother is or how she grew up or what she was like, you know, as a kid or a teenager. Um, she thinks she's protecting her, but when you aren't armed with information about where you come from, like, how do you move forward with any... I feel like you're not tethered sometimes you know um and so yeah i just wanted to to write about you know eva discovering who or wanting to go on the journey of discovering who her mom is who her grandma is who her great grandma is and why she fits into this lineage and you know why it's okay and forgiving her you know her ancestors and her mother for being kooky and giving her this kooky life and the strain of weirdness that goes through the women in her family and um figuring out how to um be okay with who she is instead of pretending to be someone she's not
1: yeah i felt like it in you know there's these really interesting ways that you're subverting the the sort of dominant uh romance genre you know and one of them was you know I was just sort of like oh you know we get you know okay I I, I don't know how many spoilers I could you know but we get the happy ending you know and they end up mm-hmm. together but it's sort of like not the way that you sort of think that it's going to go there's a lot of fits and starts and whatever mm-hmm. um but you know you also get the sense you know as the book progresses that Eva is starting to understand that like you know, this relationship is not all that's going to heal her. That she has to do, you know, her own uh, work um, mm-hmm. in terms of the the book that she needs to write, and in terms of, uh, you know, yeah, like dealing. Well, in order to write the book, she has to deal with some of this family history and um, right. and some of her history with Shane that she doesn't necessarily know. And to do that, she has to confront her mother as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, we have a question from somebody uh, about um, breaking into the industry as a Black writer writing about Black couples. And I think mm-hmm. that you know, most, most Black uh, uh, consumers of stories, um, you know, we, whether it's on television, whether it's in books, um, we're certainly told first that Black people don't read. We're certainly told that you know, Black love doesn't sell. We're mm-hmm. certainly, you know, and sort of what's been your journey with that, and um, also I think this person wants to know if you have any any tips or advice for emerging writers in this area.
2: Um. Well, the tips and advice would be you're doing it at the right time because right now, you know, post Trump, post BLM, post you know, the publishers are really looking self consciously looking for. Um, diverse voices um, uh, from LGBTQ+, plus, um, different, anyone outside of being a white man, you know, because honestly, like it's, it, it was a white male dominated industry for a long time. So now is the time, um, but yeah, like I, I think being having a recognizable byline in you know in very popular magazines helped me because back then, you know, in the early two thousands, it was so impossible to get anyone to believe that, like you said, we would read a, a black love story um, that anyone else but us would read it if we did, um, and why aren't why aren't you writing about black struggle? because the publishing industry has always been so monochromatic um, meaning definitely all white. You know a lot of times the editors all all they know of black people is what they've learned in school and what they learned during Black History Month, which just seeing us through the lens of symbolic oppression, and you know black people were enslaved and then Abe Lincoln freed them. And then things also kind of sucked after that. And then Martin Luther King came and he tried, but he was killed for his troubles. And so was Malcolm X. And now we have affirmative action. Like it's all being victims and there's no humanity there. And if you look at the books that were big books over the past, you know, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, it was Roots, it was, um, the help it was you know books about beloved, and- beloved you know which is my favorite book mm-hmm. um but it's very dark and scary it's horror It is horror um and we don't get any like you know fun and that's a bummer and i was talking to someone about this um i i know someone who's like an influencer in the like vintage fashion thrifting space, this, this black woman, and she dresses up in thirties, forties, fifties clothes and takes pictures of herself. And it's amazing. And, you know, she gets a lot of blowback about it. Cause she's like, why would you want to dress up like a white woman in the forties? And her response is, you know, at a time when we were like so oppressed and Jim Crow and like, she's like, First of all, black people have always been people. We always love to get dressed and go out with our friends and have a good time. You want to talk about Sunday? You want to talk about the fact that so many of these um, designers work came from black seamstresses. And you know, black Jackie Kennedy's wedding dress was made by a, a design and made by a black woman. It strips away our humanity to think that we were only oppressed. I mean, we're oppressed today. And we still love to have a good time and have fun and be in love and, and um, live full lives. So, um, but that's something that was really hard for editors to see. And I would get a lot of pushback, like, this is a really cute, fun story, but can you write a little bit about how your characters are feeling oppressed at this time? And, you know, The Perfect fine. the book I, I wrote before Seven Days in June, um, is about a Black fashion editor and editors just did not understand that at all Um, and didn't think anyone would get that a black woman is working in the fashion industry and they wanted me to change the industry to something else and it was just a nightmare it was really hard and I was rejected by every traditional publisher every single one so I went with an independent publisher which was really almost like self-publishing and I am not business lady I am not entrepreneur girl it really works for some people that to, to have control of all of the you know the marketing and sales all of that I cannot so it was really really tough for me and I was like okay this is it for me in this industry and you know now it's going to be a Netflix movie starring Gabrielle Union coming out next year so that's just a testament to publishers being wrong about what's sellable and what's marketable and what we're interested in. And also what can, um, be relatable for anyone. So keep at it. And again, now is the time.
1: No, thank you for all of that. And, um, I think it's, um, it's just, it's so interesting, you know, sort of like the dominant narratives that even we ourselves can, take in mm-hmm. you know what black means because it's not like 7 days in june doesn't have tragedy in it it has mm-hmm. tragedy in it 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 has pain in it it has but it's um it's multifaceted you know it's couched in between all the things that you know are couched in between daily life all the time you know pain mm-hmm. is couched between you know, hilarity and um, boring stuff and neutral stuff. and Yeah, um, life. Right, right. Like just fully fleshed out black light. And that kind of brings me to um, my next question. You know, the the black writing and publishing community is almost another character in the novel. Um, And this is not really a world we see represented on the page and with such affection insight, hilarity, and vulnerability. Um, and you know, I have a personal pet peeve whenever I find out, if <laughs> I read a book and in the first few pages, I find out one of the protagonists is a writer, I get salty and I'm like, oh, this is, this book's gonna suck. Cause it's just gonna be like, you know, the writer's not like using their imagination. Like, they're just I know. Sort of, like, I'm You know what I mean? Like, it's just gonna be like an exercise and like, you know, I'm so great. I'm so whatever. And then this is like one of the first books, it might be the only book that I've read, where I'm like, it just wasn't about that at all. Like, it just felt like both of these characters were just trying to get to each other. And then like writing was like sort of a means to do that. But then they're in this black literati space. um, Mm -hmm. And so then there's these other characters like Cece, who's such an interesting um, and powerful, as you say, secondary character who really reads like a a Mm -hmm. protagonist in a lot of ways. Um, So I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, what role sort of like this, this black writing and publishing community, you know, plays in the novel for you. Mm -hmm. Well, there's
2: so many characters out there like them, you know, Um, I really wanted to have this scene with Eva on the panel at the book event, because, you know, she's on the, she's a panelist. Um, on this panel discussing the life of Black authors in 2019. Um, and so, or maybe it was before, I don't remember when the book is set, but it's post-Trump. Um, it's
1: 2019,
2: 2019. It is 2019, yeah. Yep. And, and so it's all about just talking about, you know, what, what we just spoke about. But Eva, who writes Vampire Erotica, doesn't feel that she she's like she says something like yes i'm woke in my private life but the people on that panel are woke oh she says i'm woke recreationally but they're woke professionally like they're quoted in you know time magazine like i don't um and we are sort of separated like that you know no one's going to ask me to pontificate about race relations in america
1: Though I have thoughts, but no one's going to ask me because I write. a lot of thought, those thoughts in the novel, I will say. Yes, they're in there. Um, but, you know, women's
2: fiction is sidelined because things that women are interested in are silly. And so she's on this panel with these like hard hitting guys. Um, and I know some of these, you know, Really acclaimed, fabulous black male authors that write these really tough nonfiction books about you know being black in America, and they are a trip. You know, it's they have the opinion and that's it, and it's always so often it's male black male focused to the exclusion of the rest of us that are out here are struggling too. Um, So I just wanted to to touch on how Black people, we are obviously not a monolith. Um, You can have five different Black authors on a panel, and they all are coming from totally different um, points of view. And so I kind of, I just, I wanted to show that. It
1: cracked me up. I mean, you know, maybe it's like a little bit too close. Cause I've been, you know, I don't write vampire erotica but you know, I've been on some of those panels you know, where the, you know, the blacker than thou and you know, I really appreciated, you know sort of you know, the kind of um, yeah, uh, space that that he took up and like the way that he was sort of like playing it, right. But then you have these other wonderful characters like Belinda, who's this, you know, like amazing poet um, yeah and but you know like she's also multifaceted like she dates like men like 20 years younger than her who like yeah even, like ever and like dresses in a very certain way and like but she's like also hilarious like Cece mm-hmm. and, you know it's like I just felt like I know all these people like I know I know them um and so it was just it was just kind of a, a wonderful um it, it just was a wonderful way to sort of get at this particular slice of black life um, through black literati. So thank you for that. Um, We have a question about the film adaptations of your projects and what you can share.
2: Um, I can't really share anything because I don't know that much. So uh, seven days in June, no. The Perfect Fine wrapped filming um, and it's it will be on Netflix in spring of 2023. So now it's in this stage where I, I, it's like film speak and I don't really know. They're like editing and, um, but it's, it's all been shot and it's beautiful. And I was on set last summer when they were shooting. Um, I got a cameo. So that's really exciting. (laughs) Um, And like it, from what I saw on set, it was my first time on a movie set, like it just, it's going to be magical. Um, And the director, Numa Perrier is just, um, she's such a visionary. So I'm really excited for that. And um, Seven Days in June, we're still at the beginning stages of putting together the team. And that is um, going to be a series. So not a movie. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So that's all I've got. That's, that's a lot though. Congratulations on all of that, particularly, um, you know, it it sounds like in terms of publishing industry stuff, like you you had some, um, some, uh, blockades kind of set up in your way. Um, and so it must be like even sweeter now to kind of, you know, be on the other side of that. Like, of course that's not why you write the novel right um but it's nice yes yes totally It's um, really
2: nice to get the gratification
1: um I don't know if you can hear my son yelling at my daughter in the background but you know this no is where, this is this is where we're at okay um <laughs> <laughs> that time of night um okay we have Okay, what Black? We have another question from um, an audience member. What other Black woman in romance would you recommend to someone who's devoured your work and that of the equally delightful Victoria Christopher Murray?
2: Um, I love Jasmine, Jasmine Guillory. Do not turn on that water. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Talia Hibbert writes great um, romance and her characters. you know, there's some great disability representation and um, neurodivergence, it's brilliant, her, her romance. Um, and Alyssa Cole, I, I love. Um, so those are three that I am really into. Um, yeah, those are my faves, my, my contemporary faves,
1: yeah. <laughs> Question, um, what are you yourself reading these days?
2: Well, I am working on my next novel. It's due on June 1st. Sadly, no, it's so scary. Um, so I'm currently not reading anything because I don't have the time. Um, but there's a lot that I would like to read. I still haven't read, um, I love Taylor Jenkins' Read, and I still haven't read. Um, came out last year, Um, Malibu Rising. So I would love to read that. Um, I never read Cast and I am a huge fan of um, The Warmth of Other Suns. So that I will definitely read this summer when I have time to read. Um, And I'm sorry, I'm not really good with this right now because I,
1: have to ban myself from reading in
2: order to get through writing
1: no I totally understand um and it's also like I feel like when I'm talking to one of my friends about like okay let's get lunch and then they're like oh where should we go and suddenly I can't think of any place to eat lunch even though it's like
2: you've never been anywhere
1: I've never been out to lunch <laughs> in my life suddenly you know when you're put on the spot it's like oh I, I never I don't read I I don't right. read. Right, I I completely get it. So um, yeah, and I think that we are going to start wrapping it up, Tia. Um, I don't know if it's been such a delight um, to talk to you. And um, I really, um, I write across genre as well and I read across genre. And so I just really appreciate um, everything that you're doing to just tell the kind of story and the kind of truth. Um, that, that you feel compelled, you feel drawn um, yes. to, to put on the page. So, um, well, I will do it as long as I'm allowed.
2: I love it. <laughs> good,
1: good, I'm so glad. And Tia, thank you so much again for sharing your time and your warmth and your expertise. Um, oh, thank you for having me. This was so fun. It was really fun, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> please have a great night, everyone.
0: That wraps up our Carver County Library event with Tia Williams. Make sure to catch our last Club Book Podcast of the season with Rebecca Roanhorse. Rebecca Roanhorse is among a small cohort of indigenous novelists reshaping North American science fiction, horror, and fantasy, according to the New York Times. Fevered Star, the anticipated second installment of her award-winning Between Earth and Sky Trilogy, hit shelves in April. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons. Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minpost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.